the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, hey, good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're joining us live or online. Today, we're continuing in our series in the book of Judges. And so uh, I am excited for this series. The book of Judges is filled with so many of the weirdest stories in the whole Bible. And today, I wanna talk to you about something that we don't usually think about as a good thing. I wanna talk to you today a little bit about weakness. I've titled this message today, Beautiful Weakness. And now in our culture, weakness is not something that we usually strive for. Like no one's like looking at their little 10-year-old kid and thinking, I hope they grow up weak. Almost every night I pray for our little boys that they would grow up brave and strong and kind and chase after Jesus with their whole heart. But I never like, I'm like, hey, I hope they turn out to be wusses. I never do that. (laughs) But I I think today as we look at this story, I think there's a beautiful kind of weakness that I want us to discover today. If you have your Bibles, go over to Judges chapter three. (laughs) Judges chapter three. Verse seven says this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, that's a key phrase, and served the Baals and the Asherahs, these, these false gods, the anger, these false gods, these idols. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathatham, king of, <laughs> butchered it, king of Aram, did better first service, it's y'all's fault, or Aram Naharahim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Here's the next key phrase. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. So we see this pattern here where, where the Israelites will have a, a season in their life where things are going pretty great and then they will begin to forget God and then enter into sin and worshiping false gods and then life begins to go, diff, go, go have difficulty because sin, though fun for a while, never ends well. And so they begin to do the wrong thing and then life gets difficult, circumstances get tough, God delivers them into the hands of their enemies and then they have these moments where they recognize we were better off when we were serving God and then they will cry out to God and he will send them a deliverer. This is a pattern we see in this book and so this first of these judges. Now, if you're thinking like judge, like sit on a bench and give legal verdicts, that's not the kind of judges we see here. Think more like military tribal leaders or think more like deliverer. And so the first one of these deliverers is this guy, Othniel. He is the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, Caleb of Joshua and Caleb spied out the land. And so he comes from a great family. And so the first one of these leaders is someone that you would expect, someone that you would expect to be a great leader, sort of like when a Kennedy or a Bush runs for president. You're like, yeah, that's supposed to happen, right? And so that was sort of thing where he's, he's Caleb's younger brother, comes from a great family. He's the first one of these judges. It says, now the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathahim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years, about one generation, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now the pattern repeats itself. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. 
Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And then we see the pattern again. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliver. So here's your first principle. Embracing our weakness invites God's activity into our lives. So we see this dichotomy. There were these moments when life was going awesome. The Israelites began to think, I don't really need God. It says they forgot the Lord. They thought, I, I, we're good. The things that are going good in our lives are because we're so smart or we work so hard or look what we did. And so they begin to think that they don't need God. And so they forget the Lord there. God. And so here's the thing. When life's going awesome, sometimes we fall into the same trap and we tend to forget God and, and, and we forget him in a way where we think we no longer need him. And that's what they do. And, and God warned them that this was going to happen. You know, over and over again in the Old Testament, we see them warn, do not forget the Lord. Here, here we see in Deuteronomy 8 verse 10. It says, command over and over again not to forget he says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord, your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. He says, he says, don't forget God. He says, when you have a bank account full of cash, when your business is going better than ever, when your health is great, when you're living in your dream home, he says, remember that all these good things come from God. And he says, don't forget God, because our tendency when life is going awesome is to forget God. And he says, otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when you're herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. See, the essence of pride is saying, I don't need God. The essence of pride is saying, I am enough. And, and he says, so if, uh, he says, don't forget God and become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And, and so when we embrace our weakness, what we see here is, is, is in the children of Israel, he says that they, they get proud, they forget God. Life gets difficult, they remember that they need God. They remember that, uh, that apart from God, we can do nothing good, lasting, meaningful. He's the source of all good things. And so then they remember that they're weak without God and that they need him. And then they cry out to him and then he sends a deliverer. And so when, when I embrace my weakness, when I embrace the fact that I really need God, what I'm doing is I am inviting God's activity into my life. And so, but what happens is when we live in denial of our weakness, which is pride, when we think I'm, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I really don't need God. When I live in denial of my weakness, what happens is I actually then become weak. But when I embrace our weakness, my weakness, I invite God's activity. That's, that's why a couple of different times, New Testament, the Bible tells us, God opposes the proud. God opposes the person who says, I'm smart enough, I work hard enough, it's all me, I don't really need God. He says, but he gives grace or he gives favor to the humble. While the essence of pride is saying, I don't need God, the essence of humility is living with this deep awareness that I really do need God. And so, when we're aware of our weakness, we live knowing that we need God and we cry out to him. So the Israelites have this pattern where, where life's going great. They think that they don't need God. 
they think that they've got it covered, and so they forget God, and then, and then life gets difficult without God, and so they recognize we do need him, they cry out to him, and then he sends a deliverer. So when I embrace my weakness, when I embrace my need of God, I invite God's activity in my life. And so sometimes we forget God in general, we don't even think about him. Sometimes we forget that we need him. We forget that, that, that we, we, we think we're strong enough without him. We forget that we're weak without him. We, for, we forget what he's done for us. Over and over again, the Old Testament says, hey, remember, I'm the one that delivered you out of Egypt. Remember what I've done for you. Remember my salvation and deliverance that I've brought into your life. And, and so, we, uh, so we, we forget like this. And, and I think it's so easy in our culture to do this. And, and I wonder for you if, if maybe, maybe that's a reality for you right now. Maybe you have, have forgotten God and that you're not really thinking about him. Maybe you've forgotten your God and that you don't really think about how much you really need him. Maybe you have forgotten God and you've forgotten the wonder of, of the things he's done in your life and Christ and salvation and all these other good things. You've forgotten what he's done in your life or maybe you've forgotten what it's really like to really walk with God and to love, with him, to love him deeply. We see in Revelation 2, 4, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you have at first. Other translations say you've forgotten your first love. He says, remember where you fall and remember what it's like when you were really loving God with your whole heart. He says, and repent. He says, turn back to me and do the things you did at first. And, and so maybe, maybe you'd say, you know what, I think maybe there's some areas in my life where maybe you can sometimes fall in that same trap that the children of Israel fell into, that when life was going awesome, sometimes you forgot how much you really needed God. Sometimes you forget, and, and so there's this, there's this thing, when I embrace my weakness, when I embrace that I really need God, it's at that moment that I invite his activity in my life. Second Corinthians 12 verse nine says this. So Paul's in this moment of incredible difficulty. Most people think he's probably, it's probably blindness that he's dealing with. He's asked God to bring an instantaneous victory, to bring an instantaneous deliverance. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes we ask God to, to, to change something in our life and it's quick and it's instant, but many times it's not. And so that's what's going on with Paul. He, he's got this thing, probably blindness. He's asked God to deliver him of, of it and it's not happening. And so here we see verse nine, here's what God says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's the truth. You are never stronger than when you embrace how weak you are apart from God. You're never stronger than when you embrace how weak you are apart from God. And you're never weaker than when you think that you're strong enough without God. He says, he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. He said, and Paul says, he says, hey, if it's, if it's in my weakness that God's power, that his activity is gonna be manifest in my life, he says, then I'm just gonna steer into that slide. He says, therefore, I'm gonna boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. His activity may just be flowing in my life. He says, that's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so this, there's this principle that embracing our weakness invites God's activity in our life. When I embrace, I really need God. It invites his power. It invites his activity, his strength in my life. But when I act like I don't need him, I experience the opposite. Here's second truth. God loves to take the most unlikely to do the seemingly impossible. Let's keep reading this super weird story. Hey, there's gonna be a little bit of potty humor in this story. 
If this story offends you, I'm sorry I didn't write this story. Life Church may not be the church for you if you're that uptight. It's just true. <laughs> People like that don't thrive here. Judges 3, if I can point you to the uptight churches. Just kidding. Judges 3.15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute, with treasure, with money, to Eglon, Eglon, king of Moab. Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, about 18 inches long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. I'm glad the story doesn't read that he was a kind of fat man, but he clarifies, this guy is super fat. <laughs> After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gigal, he himself went to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. So you got this like 18 inch blade and like a 10 inch handle. That whole thing, that guy, like, it, it's, it, his, it says his belly absorbs the whole thing. And the fat closed in over it. I didn't write this stuff. <laughs> then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So here's a couple of things about this. When, the, when we read that Ehud was a left-handed man, um, a, a couple of things. Uh, how many of you guys are, are, would say you're left-handed? Left-handed? All right. Anyone claim to be ambidextrous, just so we can know? Impressive. You guys are the better of us. Um, he, that guy put up both hands. Like, yes, I am so... Uh, <laughs> I'm so ambidextrous, I'm putting up both hands. They say left-handed people are more likely to be a genius. Um, and so, but in the Bible, the right hand is honored. And that's why I'm glad I'm right-handed. Um, and, and it's, you know, the right hand was a symbol of God's strength, God's power. If somebody was to be honored, you set them at your right hand. It was like this picture of strength and power. Now, if you were to read this story in, uh, in Hebrew, when it says that he was, was left-handed, what it really speaks of in Hebrew is, is it really says his right hand didn't work. It's very likely that, that he actually had some sort of disability. Either he had no right hand or it was totally lame and, and, and unusable. And so what, what we see is in this story is this fascinating thing that, that, that God uses Ehud in spite of his weakness. That, that he's, in, in, in this society, uh, um, even more cruel than ours when it relates to people who, with any sort of physical disability. And, and so for, for all of his life, people would have looked at him and not expected much. And people would have overlooked him. They, the, the thought of him ever being any sort of military conqueror would have been completely off the table because the right hand was where the strength was. He didn't even have one. And, and so what we see is that God uses Ehud in spite of his weakness. We see this, this contrast between him and Othiel, that first, that first of these judges. Everybody had high hopes for him. He came from a great family. By all accounts, he, he fit the part of being a great warrior. But when we look at Ehud, nobody would have ever expected it. Everybody 
would have thought there's, there's no chance that he's going to be any sort of, of military leader, but it goes beyond that. God doesn't just use him in spite of his weakness. God uses him because of his weakness. See, here's the thing. Because he's coming in and doesn't even have a right arm, nobody perceives him as a threat. Now, he's got his sword strapped on, his, on the inside of his leg, on the opposite leg from where every, anybody else would have strapped a sword. And so he, he comes in, and, and, and very likely everyone else that's carrying all that tribute, all that money, those taxes paid to this king, they would have been patted down. They would have been frisked to make sure they weren't a threat. But everyone looked at Ehud and thought, well, man, that, that, this one-armed guy, he's, he's got nothing. He's not, he's not any kind of threat. No doubt probably didn't even, didn't, didn't frisk him, didn't think anything of it. And so there's no way that any other enemy who was in the presence of the king, if he were to say, hey, I just want a few minutes alone with the king. Imagine that, that, that you're representing North Korea or some country that is at odds with the U.S. And, and, and you're here and you're with President, ben, President Biden and you'd say, hey, I've just got a private message. If everyone could just leave us alone and no, one, no one's frisked him at all. And so the next thing you know, he, 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 he stabs the king. The king doesn't even see it coming. Because, because all everyone else could see was his weakness. He's used because of his weakness. What we see is Ehud turned a disability into a possibility because he depended on the Lord. God used him because of his weakness. And, and maybe there's a thing in your life that you've seen as a weakness. That, that God wants to use to do his greatest work in you or through you. See, what we see with Ehud, God doesn't just use him in spite of his weakness. God, God uses him because of his weakness, because God loves to do the most unlikely, use the most unlikely to do the seemingly impossible. And, and here's the thing. Sometimes our biggest weakness can also lead to our greatest strength. I came across a story of this 10-year-old kid who decided to study judo despite the fact that he had lost his left arm in a devastating um, car accident. And the boy begins lessons with an old Japanese judo master. The boy was doing well, so he couldn't understand why after three months of training, the master had taught him only one move. Sensei, the boy finally said, I don't know about you, but you grow up Gen X, you read Sensei, your mind just takes you to the karate kid. <laughs> strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. Um, Sensei, the boy finally said, shouldn't I be learning more moves? This is the only move you, you know, but this is the only move you'll ever need to know, Mr. Miyagi said. No. Um, <laughs> not quite understanding, but believing in his teacher, the boy kept training. Several months later, the sensei took the boy to his first tournament. Surprising himself, the boy easily won the first two matches. The third match proved to be more difficult, but after some time, his opponent became impatient and charged. The boy deftly used his one move to win the match. Still amazed by his success, the boy was now in the finals. This time, his opponent was bigger, stronger, and more experienced. For a while, the boy appeared to be overmatched. Concerned that the boy might get hurt, the referee called a timeout. He was about to stop the match when the sensei intervened. No, the sensei insisted. Let him continue. Soon after the match resumed, his opponent made a critical mistake. He dropped his guard. Instantly, the boy used his one move to pin him. The boy had won the match and the tournament. He was the champion. On the way home, the boy and sensei reviewed every move in each and every match. Then the boy summoned the courage to ask what was really on his mind. Sensei, how did I win the tournament with only one move? You won for two reasons, the sensei answered. First, you've almost mastered one of the most difficult throws in all of judo. 
And second, the only known defense for that move is for your opponent to grab your left arm. <laughs> See, the boy's biggest weakness had become his biggest strength. And, and we, we see that in this story where, where it's really Ehud that made him so unlikely, but, but, but God took the unlikely and then does the seemingly impossibles. God loves to use weakness. He loves to. We see it in 1 Corinthians 1, 25. It says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He said, not many of you were valedictorian. How many valedictorians we got here today? We've got one, two, we've got two. We have any salutatorians here? One, two, three. Now here's the thing. Soren, were you salutatorian? You kind of gave us the half wave. The salutatorian shame, like, uh, just think of it The valedictorian's like, yes, me. Here's the thing, have you ever known a salutatorian that didn't have a story about how the valedictorian stole it from him? <laughs> Claire was salutatorian. She reminds us of that about twice a month. <laughs> she dumb shames us over dinner. And, uh, and then she'll share how this, the person, the valedictorian transferred in senior year and it was fully illegitimate. You, you guys ever, that's, just, that's what salutatorians do. And so Claire totally does that to us. He says, but hey, not, not a lot of you guys were valedictorian. Most of y'all weren't even salutatorian, he says. He says, not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. See, God loves to do the amazing through the unlikely. And we see this over and over and over again in the Bible. We see this with, with King David. He's this, he's this small shepherd boy that, that when Samuel was going to pick a king, he, he assumed it'd be the older brother, maybe the second oldest, not the youngest, not the one that was small out taking care of the sheep. He was totally overlooked. And we see this woman at the well, the woman with the bad reputation and ends up telling her whole village about Jesus. We see it's, it's the unlikely that God uses to do the amazing thing. We see Mary who's just young and poor and nothing remarkable about her except for her love for God and but, but God chooses her to be a part of bringing the Messiah into the world. We see Paul, who before he came to faith, was just famous for killing Christians. you think that would be like fully disqualify him. Ends up writing half the New Testament. He, he's, God loves to just do this. He loves to use weakness. And the fact that you may seem unremarkable and unlikely, it just simply means that you are a great candidate for God to do amazing things in you and through you. And what God wants to do in you and through you, your, your weakness, that thing about you that you wish was different, the thing that, that, that you wish you could change or would spend your whole life trying to change or that, that mistake you made in the past that if you could go back, you never would, would, have, would have done it. That thing, it, it could be a big part of God's story, what he wants to do in you and to do through you. We see this beautiful weakness in this story. Here's the last thing and we're done. Because God will bring our ultimate deliverance we could see our weakness and suffering through the lens of joy. Let's keep reading this story. It just keeps getting weirder. Verse 24. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They said, I think he's in there pooping. They said, we don't want to interrupt the king's poop. Some of you, some of you men are going to get a sign at your house, on, on your bathroom. Do not interrupt the king's poop. And so... Uh, 
They waited to the point of embarrassment. So he's like, he's in there so long. They're like, man, this is getting weird. He doesn't even have an iPhone in there. Um, (laughs) 90% of people confess taking their iPhone with them to the bathroom. I mean, I only asked 10 people before service, nine out of 10 confessed it. And so, uh, now that is a stat I did read. may not be true, but I read it. He says, uh, he says, but when he did, they waited to the point of embarrassment. When they did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with them, leading them, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They arrived, allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, no, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years, about two generations. So here's the thing with this story. The way this story is told, it's meant to be hilarious. It's meant to be funny. See, here it is. You got this one-armed guy, kills the original Jabba the Hutt figure. (laughs) This epically fat guy, he poops himself. The servants don't check on him because they assume he's taking a super long poop. It's meant to be a hilarious story. Parents would have sat by the campfire and, and just said, hey, let me tell you this story of when things were so terrible for our people. And we were, we were conquered by these people because we, we turned from God and then these people, they, they conquered us and made us their slaves. It was so very, very bad. But, but then we realized we needed God. And let me tell you this hilarious story of how God delivered us and everybody would just be laughing by the campfire. It's meant to be hilarious. So if you don't think it's funny, it's, you don't think God's funny and probably going to hell. And so, um, um, so here it is. Here's the principle. Because God was their faithful deliverer. Even the terrible things they went through that were fully terrible doesn't minimize the fact that it was terrible. But because God was their faithful deliverer, even the terrible things they went through, though fully terrible, could be looked at through the lens of joy. Because the focus was on God's past and present and future deliverance. It's it's this thing. So you see in, in Ehud, what we see is that we see the gospel story. We see people that are in a terrible situation because they turned their back on God. That's all of us apart from Jesus. Yet God is faithful to come and bring a deliverer to them. But the deliverer is not at all who was expected. Jesus was an unlikely savior with the, uh, that came with the appearance of weakness. He's born in a stable to a really poor family. Not impressive looking. At this time, if they, the one thing you wanted from a king is you wanted him to be impressive looking. You wanted him to look the part, to be tall and strong and look like a military leader. But in Isaiah 53, it says he didn't. Now, there was nothing impressive about how Jesus looked. No appearance that we should desire him, it says. And so, so he, he, and he wasn't the military leader people expected. What everyone expected was a big, strong, strapping military leader to come in and lead a military insurrection and overcome the Roman Empire. But he wasn't what was expected. He dies a gruesome death without putting up a fight. What everyone's expectancy was, was that this Messiah was going to come and that he was going to kill all of his enemies. But what Jesus does is he comes and literally lets his enemies kill him, this appearance of weakness. 
doesn't put up a fight. And it was out of this appearance of weakness that he ends up crushing life's greatest enemies, just like Ehud. It was out of this appearance of weakness, one arm. No one expected him to be as any sort of threat. Out of this appearance of weakness, he ends up defeating the enemy and he brings a greater victory and deliverance than anyone had ever hoped. We see this picture of the gospel. And so what happens is, is the people of Israel, they would look back and they'd say, man, it was so bad and it was so painful and we were in such a jam. But God was so faithful and they, they tell this story and it's meant to be hilarious. And so here's what it means. That because God is a faithful deliverer, we can at some level now and ultimately in the future, we'll be able to see life's greatest pains, difficulties, suffering, and even regret through the lens of joy. Any big Lord of the Rings fans? Any big Lord of the Rings people? After the climax of the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji discovered that his friend Gandalf was not dead as he thought, but alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then this powerful line, is everything sad going to come untrue? Tim Keller writes, he says, the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Embracing the Christian doctrines of the incarnation and cross bring profound consolation in the face of suffering. The doctrine of the resurrection can instill us with a powerful hope It promises, I love this, it promises that we will get the life we most longed for. A life without pain and suffering and divorce and cancer. It says, but it will be an infinitely more glorious world than if there had never been the need for bravery, endurance, sacrifice, or salvation. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, some people say that, 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 uh, that the pain of this life, that nothing could ever take it away. And, and he, says, he says this, he says, no, so some people would say, no future bliss can make up for the pain in this life. And then he says this, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. It will not only be ended, but so radically vanquished that what has happened will only serve to make our future life and joy infinitely greater. Amen. See, see, the wonder is this, that because we have this faithful deliverer and because of what he's done in the past and the, and the cross and resurrection, overcoming our, our greatest enemies, and because of what he's doing in the present right now by, the, by his Holy Spirit, making us more like Jesus, and because we have this hope that in the new earth that, that there will be no more pain or suffering or sickness or sadness or crying or dying, and that he will literally wipe away every tear from every eye. What that literally means is that it's as if he's going to undo every pain that has ever been experienced in this life and this new earth. And so because of that, we have this ability, not that it's perfect, not that we're fully there now, but we have this ability because of this confidence in our faithful deliverer. We can begin to look at at, at life's greatest wounds, not that they're still not there, 
And life's greatest pains, not that they're still not there. Our greatest mistakes, not not that we wish we still hadn't done them and the the worst things done to us, not that we wish they hadn't happened, but, but that we can begin to look at life's greatest pains through a different lens. Knowing that one day, that, 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 God, that Jesus on the cross and resurrection has defeated our greatest enemies. He's changing us now to become who we're meant to be. And then one day, all of, of those terrible things will be completely undone. And so we can begin to look at it through a different lens. That's what's happening here. Is is that people of Israel had undergone this terrible experience. They'd forgotten God. Life had gotten terrible. They were in bondage and slavery and defeat. But they remembered they knew God. They needed God. And they cried out to him. He sends a deliverer. So now they're able to look back at all of that and tell the story with this whole hilarious bent. Because they're allowed to see it through the lens of joy. So I've got three questions for you and we're done. First... Have you forgotten God? Do you sometimes forget that he's there? Do you sometimes forget that he loves you? Do you sometimes forget that you really need him? You begin to, to, to live in a prideful way that says, I, I'm strong enough and good enough and rich enough and healthy enough and I've got this. I've got life by the tail. And you've forgotten that you really, really, really need God. Maybe you've forgotten what he's done in your life. You've forgotten what he's delivered you from. That warning over and over again. Don't forget what I've de- how I've delivered you out of Egypt. And maybe, maybe you forget all that he saved you from, all the ways in which he's changed you, all, all, of the, all of his good gifts in your life. Maybe you've forgotten God. Second question. Have you looked at your life and do you look at yourself through a lens where you're not very remarkable? Nothing special about you. The mistakes you've made, the flaws, the, the, the flaws or areas of weakness. You've sort of written yourself off where you don't really expect God to do much in your life. And you don't expect God to do much in you and don't expect God to do much through you because you kind of just see yourself as weak or unremarkable or flawed. And, and so there's not a level of expectancy that God's going to do much. And you've forgotten this truth that God loves to do the amazing in and through the unlikely. Final question, is there a pain, a regret that is so painful in your life that, that, that you wish you could begin to see it through a greater lens of, of this faithful deliverer and what he's done in, in your past, what he's doing in you now and how one day all of that's going to be undone done and you'd love to just be able to see it through the lens of that faithful deliverer and have a little different perspective on it. Why don't we pray together? Maybe some of you, even the quietness of your heart, you need to do what those children of Israel did where they just cried out to God. They remembered that they needed him. They remembered that apart from him, they were weak and they needed God. And in crying out to him, they invited God's activity in their life. And maybe even in this moment, you might just tell the Lord, say, God, man, I'm guilty. Many days, I forget you. I forget your love. I forget all you've done in my life. Many days, I forget how much I really need you. Maybe just even just confess to God just how much you need him. 
Or, or maybe you fall in that trap of just seeing yourself as unremarkable or allowing your mistakes or, or your weaknesses to lower your expectation of what God might want to do in your life and through your life. And, and maybe just cry out to God and just say, God, I, maybe ask him to just raise, a, give you a holy sense of expectancy. Increasing your level of expectation of what he would, might do in your life and through your life. And maybe there, there's a, a mistake or a hurt or a wound that's happened sometime in the past, but it meaningfully affects your present. And maybe you just ask the Lord to say, God, would you help me? Lord, to see that through a different lens, the lens of you, our faithful savior, deliverer, and healer. Your work in the past, your work in the present, and, and then your work that's yet to come when you will wipe away every tear from every eye. And maybe just ask them, say, God, would you give me a different perspective on that? So Father, that's our prayer. Lord, we thank you that you, just as you were faithful in these people's lives, you're faithful in ours. And Lord, we, we rejoice that, that you are a strong God that loves to use weak people. And so we do just confess our weakness apart from you. We confess our desperate need for you. And Lord, we rejoice that you are the God who loves to do the amazing through the unlikely. And Lord, that whatever flaws, weaknesses, sins, brokenness, or just the fact that we just see ourselves as average, unremarkable, God, that, that you want to do amazing things in our lives and through our lives. And Lord, we rejoice that one day you will wipe away every tear from every eye. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see life's most difficult things, even now, through the lens of your faithful deliverance, saving and healing in the past, present, and even yet to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Hey, uh, hey, before you guys take off, um, you know, as Pastor Dave talked about, uh, recognizing and remembering our weakness, uh, I think one of the ways we do that is in our times of prayer. If going, man, God, you are almighty, you are all-powerful, you are sovereign, I am not. And so if you would like to submit a prayer request, you can find that on our website. There's a button there to click that, uh, to submit a prayer request. If you're online and you would like some prayer today, uh, you can click the prayer icon there. And somebody uh, from our team would love to pray for you. And for those of us here in person, if you would like prayer immediately following service, there will be people from our prayer team who will pray with you this morning. Church, we love you guys. Praying for you. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.